Hey, Wax and Wainers. Welcome to episode 10. That's 010 of the uh, Wax and Wayne podcast. I want to thank you very much for joining us. As always, I am your host, Matt Carlson. It's a pleasure to be with you. We're going to do something a little different this week. In, uh, in a typical week, what we would do is we would sit down and I would give you some news and some little tidbits and some shit that's going on in the music world, specifically as it relates to indie music, vinyl, um, physical media, all that stuff. I mean, if you've been here for a while, you know the ropes, you understand how it works. We would sit down and we would, well, I say we, when I say we, I mean me. I would, uh, I would you know, basically give you a whole bunch of little tidbits in my opinion and, um, you know, we'd spend about an hour together or an hour and 15 minutes and I would give you uh, a diatribe from my perspective and I would monologue um, extemporaneously and um, at random about how I felt about certain shit and I would, uh, you know, just go off on a tangent about this, that or the other thing and um, we would kind of cover some some specific topics that I had kind of set up for the week and this week we're going to do something different. Um, we've been up for two and a half months now. We've been up for 10 weeks in a row every Friday. I bring you another one of these episodes. And this week, um, I sat down a few days ago and um, talked with my buddy Dan McKernan, who's in a band called Desolation Angels from Detroit. And Dan put together a great piece that showed up on this past Monday about um, December 15th about the great Otis Redding. And we sat down to do a primer conversation and I did this last week with my buddy Dave Baldwin, and it wound up being a great conversation. And Dave and I spent about an hour and a half talking about XTC and then kind of looping that around, how it relates to music and physical media and a bunch of other things. And it turns out when Dan and I started talking, we spent a lot of time talking about his dad because that's really where his love of Otis Redding started. And instead of getting uh, that conversation to kind of, you know, sort of veer back into the Otis Redding lane, we wound up talking about a whole bunch of other stuff. And so instead of presenting this as a primer conversation, I want to present this as a podcast episode. This is an hour and a half or so of me and Dan McKernan um, talking about Otis Redding, his dad growing up, the son of an audiophile growing up uh, the, in the, um, under the auspices of a guy who loved music and, and, and learning to become a guy who loves music and his... Um, kind of um, on-again, off-again relationship with vinyl, physical media, how he listens to music now. And, of course, we eventually bring it around to the subject at hand, which is the great Otis Redding. And if you have not read Dan's piece on the waxandwainemusic.com site, I highly encourage you to go do that. You can find 22 tracks of Otis Redding songs and a beautiful piece that Dan put together that is an homage to his dad, to music of the 60s, to growing up in Detroit, and Dan and I touch on a lot of this stuff in our conversation, but mostly it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece about a guy who I feel like is kind of a blind spot for me. I'm aware of Otis Redding. I know about Otis. I appreciate Otis Redding, but I don't necessarily know the kinds of things that I should know. And so it was a great learning experience for me to read Dan's piece, for me to put this together with him and to format it for the site. And I, I can't thank Dan enough for taking the time to do the piece and to talk to me. And it was really a great conversation. And um, if you're into baseball and bourbon, which are two things that I love, you should really check out Dan's blog called BaseballAndBourbon.com. And he talks about going to different baseball parks and different bourbons that he's drinking, specifically right now, trying to find the um, 
new edition of the Pappy Van Winkle, which is one of my very favorite bourbons. Um, so I'm not going to take up a whole lot more time. We're not going to do a reissue wish list this week. We're just going to fill this whole week's episode with um, my talk with Dan McKernan of Desolation Angels and uh, Detroit Music Dude. Um, and he and I are going to spend some time talking about his old man, his relationship with music, uh, what it was like when he kind of kind of figured out that his old man, who was an audiophile, who embarrassed him in his youth, kind of figured it out and got it together, um, in in Dan's eyes at least, and um, how he kind of came around on that whole thing and in many respects started to model his old man's behavior. Um, we all become our we all become our parents, don't we? It's interesting how that works. So um, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and we'll just morph right into my conversation with Dan McKernan. And I want to thank you very much for listening. And um, I hope you've enjoyed uh, my five minutes or so of rambling. It's, it's about 55 minutes less than I usually give you. So hopefully you enjoyed this week's conversation. And um, I invite you to stick around. And even though the holidays are coming, I want to let you know that we will be putting some stuff up the week of Christmas and the week of New Year's. Um, and um, please uh, stay tuned. Keep listening, and we'll see you on the flip side. And uh, here's my conversation with uh, my buddy Dan McKernan. Take care. about it but i was i was reading the one uh posted today and i was having kind of the same issue um he was having where he was you know how do i cut xtc down to an hour right i could easily make this double and i was having the same feeling to a certain degree but the flip side is otis redding never did a song that was over three minutes long so when i got your yeah when i got your list i was like what the fuck there's 22 songs on here Holy Christ! I, I and actually I was like, wait, they're all two minutes and fifteen seconds long. <laughs> yep, I, I put it in a, a, a music player like three different times to go. This can't be right. <laughs> I was like, no, it is right. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so I mean, I don't know if you listened to the interview I did with with Dave. I don't. Do you remember Dave when when the Pantones and Desolation Angels played together? Vaguely, vaguely. vaguely okay, yeah. So do we. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, but uh, well, it was a long time ago, man. I mean, that yeah, was longer not, than I care to admit. Yeah, God, that was oh six, maybe oh seven. Like that was like seven or eight years ago. Yeah, I want to say six because I I actually hadn't met my wife yet. So oh wow, yeah, now, life has you, moved on since then. I was gonna say, how long have you been married? Um, well, I I, I got married two years ago. We met okay. in two thousand seven. So okay. And is it still pretty much the same lineup? No, I'm. I've got a. I mean. I'll be honest, the you know because we were a trio for so long. Right. I don't even remember who was playing bass with me when we played with you guys, but I would venture to say that it's still the same drummer, still me. Okay. Um, we added a lead guitarist. Oh, nice. And we had a bass player who who had kind of come and went for a while. And okay. This particular show works out perfectly because he can play it with us. We've had a fill-in kind of alternating with him because he's in another Detroit band that's all fancy schmancy and playing all this big stuff out on the road so who is it um he, he, john abel or wolf he plays with a band called the infatuations okay um he plays with kenny olsen from kid rock's band and all right stuff like that and i'm and i'm so like hopelessly out of the loop now 
you're not missing anything. <laughs> I wish I could say you were, but you're not. <laughs> so it's not like because I felt like you know you know there was that that period between like I don't know the the Pantones really started playing like out as like a bar band in like oh five like early oh five. And so between like oh five and oh seven or oh eight, I felt like there was a lot of really cool stuff going on. Like there, there was, were, there were a bunch of really good bands, and they were doing original music. And then, you know, it's hard for me to know whether our lack, like by two thousand ten, we pretty much ceased to be, um, and we're trying to resurrect it. But um, even in the stick arounds, man, it's just like we know who we need to know to play some shows once in a while. <laughs> You know? Sure, sure. You know, I as far as Detroit goes, I attribute a ton of it to uh, the recession, man. I hate saying it like that. Okay. It sounds cliched. But yeah. by 2008, you know, the bars that in large part kind of the cool bands in Detroit were playing all the time, Yeah. a lot of them closed. And the ones that didn't close, you know, were taking drastic measures to keep from closing. So. Sure. You know, these cool venues like the Belmont and Hamtramck yeah. or Jacoby's downtown, they were closing altogether. Right. The Logger House is selling, so they were on, you know, thin ice at the time. Um, you so know, they've changed ownership then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's owned by a, a, a cat named PJ, and he's he's probably owned it for six years now. He really cares. He does a good job. Um, but he's, you know, he's barely keeping his head above water, and that's with a revitalized Corktown you know, right. with slow as barbecue and all that jazz. So, yeah, and there's some good shit going on down there, man. But oh, fantastic stuff, you know, yeah. But but it's um, that's that's a tough business to be in. Oh, it's a, a, a very tough business to be in. And then there was just that period of of years where nobody was going out, nobody had any money, you know. Right. And people stopped going out. The bars stopped making money. Bars stopped booking bands. That was that. And a lot of those bands didn't make it out of there. Well, and I think, too, that one of the things that, that – and I don't know if we've talked about this before, but one of the things that we're talking about and the people that I run in circles with is that even now it's just impossible to get people to who are in a certain kind of person to get out of the house to go see original music. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like it's just really – like it's like pulling teeth. They all want to go – you know, the analogy I used with a friend the other day was it's a little bit like the same reason that the only thing that gets that gets shown at the movie theater now is shit based on comic books. Because that's, people that's just analogy. people just want to see stuff that they're already familiar with. They want to see a story they already know. They want to be comfortable with it. If they're going to go spend their nine or ten dollars or whatever, um, you know, it's like the same. It's the same reason that if you know, I mean, I I grew up I grew up really involved in theater, you know, and people were crazy about musicals, and I didn't get it. And I'm like, well, why would you want to sit through Annie six times? Because they know all the songs, right? Because they're comfortable. So that's why yeah. they go see Cats and Phantom and all that bullshit. So, um, so do you guys still see a lot of cover bands out and about and that's what like people want you to do? Are you uh, no, that? you know, we're in a, we're in a weird place cause we've been around so long now right. that, and, and, and one of the great things that's happened to us in the last six months, you know, six, six months to a year is there's new bands, young bands. As far as they're concerned, we're brand new. They never heard of us. Right. They don't know us. Um, you know, they're 22, 23, 24 years old in some cases. Right. And they come and see us and they're like, wow, you guys really have your stuff together. You guys are doing, you know, this. And, and we're thinking, well, yeah, we've been doing it for 14 years. <laughs> right. We ought to have our stuff together. But, but you know, they they like us. And to be honest, I'm impressed by them because they don't have the jadedness that so many, including myself, have yeah. of having gone through that last, you know, six years of, 
you know, not being able to get anybody out. And the amazing thing about it is they can get people out. Well, they're young. And, yeah. And, and so we're like, we just lie about how old we are. I mean, I don't know how old you are, Dan. I'm guessing you're probably in your mid-30s. I am. I am. Okay. I'm, Mid to I'm, later 30s, actually. Okay. Good for you. I'm 42 years old. Yeah. I, I work with like two other people and one of them is my wife. <laughs> um, I don't go to school. I, you know, we, we're we old enough. I mean, I've been I've been going to the bar half my life. So sure. Going, going to the bar doesn't have any novelty for me anymore. Oh, not at all. When you're 22 years old, you just got permission to go do this thing. So everybody that's that age wants to go do it. And so they're willing to run out and they're willing to go see you because they can go someplace and they can drink and not have to do it on the sly. Right. And, you know, and so they're pumped up. It's that's I work with I, I work in a company where I'm definitely on the older side of the scale there. Okay. Um, you know, it's a you know, creative firm doing websites and whatnot. And so most of the people around me are between the ages of twenty four and thirty. And and yeah, it's that's exactly, you know, they're you know, what are we doing this weekend? What what bar are we going? Let's go out after work on Tuesday and a Thursday and right. and I'm like, I'm I'm going home. Um, I'm going to talk to my wife and pet the cats and eat dinner and go to bed. <laughs> maybe take a nap, you know. Right, and, right. And and I'm like, well, I, I don't want to be that guy yet. Um, but I've still got a band, so that's my thing. Is exactly on a Friday night. I'm out, you know. I'm out doing that. And how much are you guys gigging? Um, not as much as we want to. We're probably doing. I, I would say we we try to do two to three a month, but lately it's been more like one to two a month. Okay. Yeah, we're 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 definitely not gigging as much as that. Um, in the stick arounds, but lately it's been better. You know, I would say since Labor Day, we've probably we've got a show next Friday. I think that's like our fifth show since like October. So we're right on. you know, so we're doing a couple. I mean, I don't want to get crazy with it. I mean, I don't want to be playing shit venues. I mean, we played this really weird bar up in Clio. Do you know where Clio is? Like up north of Flint. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we played this really weird place called the Spider Trap. Um. Which pretty much looks like it could be um, a production facility for an episode of The Sons of Anarchy. Wow. <laughs> um, it was <laughs> um, it was intense. I've played a lot of dive bars in my life. And um, this one, this one was special, Dan. <laughs> it was it was a special kind of awful. Um, so I don't want to do gigs like that. Like, I don't want to. No, I, I don't want to get home at four o'clock in the morning after playing to six people. Um, and it's not about making money. I mean, you can't make money at this. I mean, you can you can have a hobby that might pay for itself, but you're not unless you're unless you're doing it and you're saying I'm going to play a hundred dates a year and I'm going to go out with the intention of like making money and making some artistic sacrifices to do that by playing some covers or playing some places you don't want to play. You're not going to make money. You know, you might be you might be lucky enough to buy some gear or put a record out. Yeah, that's putting the putting a record out has always been if I can if I can come close to breaking even on the cost of putting out a record, I feel like, you know, that's I'm I've succeeded. That's a victory. Yeah. Now how many records do you guys have? We have technically we have three. Okay. Two uh full lengths. We we did put out a um uh the um GBS sessions live recording last year. Okay. But that's you know, we didn't put that out in like traditional C D format. We just um, after that was mixed and, and mastered, we just released it on SoundCloud so people could check it out. Okay, so that's and not so that's a strictly digital release then. Strictly digital. We have two gotcha. two actual like CDs you can order through Amazon, and 
you know, or iTunes, whatever. Sure. And then, you know, the digital release. And then we're going back in the studio. I don't know if it's going to be the end of this month or if it's going to be January, but we're getting, we're getting in there. Nice. Um, we're just waiting for the scheduling to work out. Fantastic. Where do you guys, where are you guys going to do that? Well, this one's, this one's a little bit trickier because, um, you know, we joked when we did our last record, our last record took three years and we closed uh, two studios. So um, we started at the White Room in Detroit because we were like, oh, we got the White Room. It's legendary. You know, everybody recorded there. And we started the White Room, did some basic tracking at the White Room, and then it went out of business before we got back. Okay. Um, so we moved out to a place in Ann Arbor and did more tracking in Ann Arbor, and then it went out of business. And we were left with this hard drive full of tunes that weren't mixed or anything else. And uh, luckily, the producer who we had worked with at the White Room, John Smerak, um, who did like Dead String Brothers and a, oh, a lot yeah. of really cool local, you know, alt country stuff and some and some national stuff too, um, he he was willing to actually just finish it at my house. He basically oh, wow. moved into my house for a month and set up. I have a soundproof basement and set everything up here and do it there. Um, so with this record, what we have is we already have recording time. Um, kind of prepaid for at the Groovebox Studios at the Russell in Detroit. Okay. Um, so we're going down there to do our basic tracking, um, drums and bass, and uh, hopefully some guitars, some of the sure. louder guitars anyway. Yeah. And then we're taking those tracks, and we're we're going to go wherever John wants us to go. So that John, might be John basement, is, that might be another place. Pardon me? That could be your basement, or it could be another studio. It could be my basement. Chances are it'll probably be, if, if there's a lot of tracking to do, it might be over at Rust Belt. Um, John's actually headed down to Nashville, so we might go down to Nashville to finish up. Oh, wow. That'd be very cool. It'd, it'd be great. I, I'd love the opportunity. Um, our bass player, Wolf, has a ton of friends down there. Um, hopefully that's not, wouldn't impede the recording process, but, you know, it should be fun either way. That sounds really exciting. That's And, and then is there a plan. plan to put that one out on physical media then? Yeah, we would want to. We would actually want to release that as a a more traditional release, and you know, I mean, everything's got to come out now digitally too. But well, of course, but um, yeah, um, I still I still love the. Uh, if it was up to me, I'd, we'd be cutting a you know a seven inch forty five off it too. But we'll have to see about right. what the costs on that are. Yeah, are you are you guys thinking about doing a vinyl version of the full record? I'd love to, and I, we actually thought about doing it with the last one, but the costs at the time were still a little too high. Um, but it, it looks like that's actually more accessible, a little bit more they're, accessible they're now. They're coming down a little bit. Um, based on some research I did recently, because um, we kind of have some songs knocking around, and that and that idea has been bantied about. It looks like you can get a pretty nice like single LP thing done with um, you know, a nice, a nice uh, full-color sleeve and everything for about two grand. Nice. You know, sometimes you have to build in a little bit of money for shipping, but I think the way we were looking at doing it was actually getting the, um, the labels and the, and the jackets printed um, down in Florida at a place mm-hmm. that I've that I've worked with before when we did Pantone stuff, and then having the actual vinyl pressed at Archer right there in Detroit. Nice. So they would just ship the the sleeves and the labels up, and then once Archer has a chance to press them and and slide them in, then we would just drive down and pick them up so we can save ourselves two or three hundred bucks and we're giving business to somebody local who has been in business for what seems like forever i mean those guys have been there since like 1944 or something right they've been there forever so um well i'm we're i mean i realize this is not germane to the um to the otis writing discussion but we're really excited about the lager house show oh we're i'm thrilled about it i mean i was when i was telling the guys i was like i mean stick rounds are 
you guys are kind of an all-star band going up there, you know. <laughs> at least us, you are, you know. Thanks, man. Well, we were just we're, we're looking at it. we're like because you know you got to understand from from Detroit we were we were always kind of in. I remember I actually just talked about uh, about this with Ann Delisi on WDET a few months back. You know, in the mid two thousands, East Lansing, as far as I was concerned, had as good an alt country scene as anybody around. It was pretty rocking. I mean, there was um. There was, you know, the Gentleman Callers, which Jeff from the Stickgrounds was in. Sure. There was, there was us, and we were doing kind of like a more, like a poppier version of that, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then there was Ingham County regulars who were awesome, who were basically those like, guys. like straight up honky tonk with a little bit of like the punk ethic. Um, Flatfoot. You had Flatfoot. Um, Aaron Bales has been a friend for a long time, and those guys were really good. And that was more like a, an alt country meets like the Rolling Stones with a little bit of swamp blues. Yep, and then you had uh, Honesty and the Steel Reserve, who were basically like this, like '50s kind of, um, you know, traditional four-piece honky tonk band, um, and it was just like, it was just, and there were some other people, you know, doing cool stuff too. Yeah, um, you know, those are the five or six that I can remember off the top of my head, and the crazy thing was, it seemed like we were all playing shows with each other all the time. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like every weekend two of those bands were on a bill together somewhere, whether that was in Detroit or Grand Rapids or here in town. And, you know, there was a stretch of time where, uh, you know, I probably went to, between playing in a band and, and going to see friends, you know, in, in 05 or 06, I probably went to 75 shows in a year, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just, just local stuff. And it was, and it was really fun. And, the places that you were talking about in Detroit, like we specifically, we, we played the Belmont four or five different times and I just loved that place. I just loved it. Um, they were really, they were really nice people and they seemed to be doing things the right way. And they always had at least a little bit of a built in crowd and Hamtramck's a cool place. Sure. And it's a shame that that went out, that, that went out of business. Now, conversely is paychecks still somehow in business? Is that still open? Paychecks is still open. Okay, how does a place like the Belmont, who treats people well, close? <laughs> and then a place like Paychecks, which does the polar and diametric opposite of that, stay open. <laughs> you just answered your own question. This is this is why capitalism is killing music. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, and and I mean, you know, Paychecks is always because you know in in Detroit, it's certainly it's a rite of passage. Um, yeah, you although go play your shit gig at paychecks to be right when you're starting your, out, I always, I always tell people, uh, desolation angels never has never played paychecks and nobody ever believes me. And I'm like, no, God we, bless we just you. didn't, I, I don't know how it happened. I, I played it in other bands I was in, but, uh, the angels didn't, but it's, it's still there. Oh, it's a terrible, terrible. Place. And you know, the funny thing is I, I, I know someone who's, who's booking some of the shows there right now and has been for the last couple months. And she's great. And I'm I, when she told me she was booking there, my first thought was, "Why? <laughs> like you, you, you book good shows. You're just going to end up so disappointed two months from now, right? And it's it, it is it is hard to watch um, that that cycle of because you've got to fill you got to fill like five nights a week. You know, I mean, you can do some DJ trivia and you can do some other shit and you can, you know do a, a Sunday night thing where you don't have a band or a Monday night thing where you don't have a band. But if that's your, if that's your thing, if you're saying we're going to be a live venue, you know, you gotta, you gotta fill 300 nights a year and some of those bands are going to suck. Yeah. You know, there's just not, I mean, you let's been, be honest. A lot of them are, a lot of them are going to suck Dan. I mean, how old, okay. So, so to kind of 
like start start to work our way into this conversation about Otis Redding. Now, you wrote in your piece that your dad was like a hardcore audiophile. The man had the best stereo. The man, the stereo system that man assembled in 1985 was probably better than the one I have today. I wow. mean, that's to a degree, and and he still has an amazing you know setup and collection. He he doesn't listen to it quite as loud as he used to, but. So it's not something that waned for him. It's just, it's just, um, it's kind of like, like that's one of the things that's really great. I think about this particular habit is that it's a lifelong pursuit. Absolutely. Like it's not the kind of thing that you, you know, it's not like, um, playing high school football or something. And then when you turn 18, all of a sudden you're done and you don't do that anymore. Like this is the kind of thing you can obsess about and, and have, you know, virtually un- until you cease to exist on this mortal coil. Um, so your your dad was a hardcore audiophile. So how old were you when you started to, I guess, pay attention to music? Well, I started paying attention to music really young. Because um, the other thing my dad, you know, certainly, and I always have to phrase this the right way to keep from giving the wrong impression. My dad was not, is not a musician. But okay. my dad always had the utmost respect for musicians. So... I had my first guitar when I actually I had a drum set first and it wasn't like a toy drum set. It was a real drum set. And how old and, would you have been when you got that? Um, if I remember the stories correctly, two and a half. Holy shit. I was so young that by the time I was four and a half, it had been taken away from me because I was using the metal symbols like Frisbees. Oh dear. Um, like a kid might. Um, and I got my first acoustic guitar when I was three. Holy but, cow. Never in a forceful kind of way. Sure, just like a um, sort of like that really like um, that gleeful sharing kind of mode. Do you think? Do you think it was? All- yeah, me and my sisters. I have two sisters who are younger, okay. and we always had musical equipment around of a quality musical equipment. I don't mean you know nobody was getting a you know three thirty five or anything like that, but right. something that was good enough to play on and learn on. But it was a matter of if we showed interest, right. You know, when I started getting into, you know, I started to enjoy, I mean, I was crazy about music. My my parents say I was crazy about it from as early as they can remember. Um, but I think that's, I think maybe that's natural to kids. I think, certainly to kids who are exposed to it. And I see, um, you know, my daughters now are, are teenagers and they're, they're at a spot where they've, they've not only kind of run with the stuff that I've tried to give them and some of that stuff they were excited about and other stuff they weren't. And they've kind of developed their own their own personal habits, and as they should, you know. But I have I have several nieces who are all like younger than kindergarten age, and I watch them. And because they're in houses that are exposed to music, they're super pumped up about it. Mm. But I don't yeah. know people who have kids because the people that I hang out with are really excited about music by and large, and so I don't know people who have kids who don't expose their kids to music at two, three, four years old. Sure. So I just make the assumption that all kids are this way, and then at some point something clicks off, and then it just becomes... I don't think it's unimportant for hardly anybody. I just think there are there are sort of these people who are much more motivated by it and moved by it, and, and kind of like there's this um, sort of internal uh, momentum with it. Like it just continues to gain steam, and it gets more and more important as you get older, and that never really stops. Yeah, maybe I'm projecting because that's how I feel. Um, But I certainly feel like music means 
at least as much to me and probably more than it ever has at any point in my life um, in terms of the way that I use it to kind of shape my day. Sure. If that makes sense. So, I think it makes perfect sense. Uh, so my my so my question is, um, as your dad shared music with you and your sisters, how would that work? Would he just play stuff and then you would pick it up by osmosis? Or did you get to a point where your dad would say, oh, man, Danny, you got to hear this? Not exactly. It was more he would he just it was always on. My dad is a guy who always to this to this very day to the point where sometimes I'll point out to him that he's to this you know I was out there this weekend to watch the Missouri Alabama game and the whole time we're watching the football game in the living room he's got internet radio streaming in in the kitchen okay. and I'm like dad shouldn't I turn that off and he's like why I'm gonna go in there to get a cup of coffee I'm gonna want to hear something <laughs> and the, I'm just like for the okay and that's that it takes to pour a cup of coffee. That's that's how it always was when I was growing up. My dad had a, a great car stereo. We had a great home stereo. We'd come home after school. He'd put on records. He'd wake up first thing in the morning. He'd put on records. And the ironic part to me was always, as I look back as an adult, was I couldn't stand most of what he was playing. Really? I did not like it. I, I found it embarrassing, to be honest. And I'm, I'm man enough to admit that now. Um but like I said in, in, when I wrote, my dad would listen to, you know, uh, the mornings were uh, – Sunday mornings. He loved country music on Sunday mornings. That was his thing. Okay. He'd get up. He'd put on, you know, Hank Williams, 40 Greatest, you know, with the double record with sure. the bust of Hank Williams on the front. Yep. And I would be horrified because he'd have it so loud, the neighbors could hear it just by how loud it was. And I would think they're all thinking we're the Block Hillbillies. Like, I got to hide in my room. I don't want anyone to know this is coming from my house. Or he'd pull up to pick me up from school, and he'd be blasting something like Otis Redding or Booker T and the MGs, Sam and Dave, you know, Motown. And and I would think, why can't he listen to Phil Collins like all my friends' dads? <laughs> and now, of course, you know, now <laughs> right. you look back and yeah, you're like... 30 years later, you're like, maybe my old man had a better idea than I did. Well, that was that was the that was the the grand awakening when I moved out, and it wasn't until I moved out we took a while. When I was a teenager, the flip side was he did not like what I liked. Okay, so and, as a, so as a teenager, what are you? So this is so you're a teenager. You you must have based on your age. You graduated early nineties from high mid nineties, yeah, ninety five. Okay, so what were you listening to in high school from that ninety one to ninety five period? What would have been some of the stuff that your dad would have objected to? You know, I, I liked, I liked, um, what, what I did was I found the guys who liked music as much as, as I did, but who liked, you know, punk rock, who liked alternative rock, you know, I, you know, the first concert I ever went to was Fugazi. Um, I loved, you know, harder edge stuff like Helmet or, um, Jane's Addiction. Um, I was huge into kind of the, you know, the the gothier pop, Depeche Mode, The Cure. I loved that stuff. And and my favorite band in the world was R.E.M. Um right there with you, brother. And 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 my dad, he was he was okay with REM. He didn't mind it. He but didn't mind it. He didn't mind it. Okay. But yeah, he hated, you know, he did not understand why I would listen to Robert Smith and his whining or or or, you know, 
Depeche Mode or and then when I got into like punk, he really thought I'd lost my mind. He and, just thought it, he just thought it was crass and talentless. Yeah, he didn't. He's like, why? Why would you listen to someone banging on a guitar and screaming when there's so much good music in the world? And you know, now that we're all much older, and my my dad's almost seventy now, my dad has more of an appreciation of punk rock now than he did when he was essentially the age I am now, where he respects. You know, that's that's one thing. I, you talk about a lifelong kind of thing. What I, what I'll give. My dad, even even more credit for, is at 70 years old, I'll go out to visit him and he will throw out a band name of some band that, yeah, maybe, you know, you got any Smashing Pumpkins? And I'll say, "Uh, sure, Dad, why? I want to hear Smashing Pumpkins. I want to hear what they sound like. I saw a TV show. They talked about that Billy Corgan guy. I want to see Smashing Pumpkins. And I'll play some for him and he'll go, eh, it's not really my thing. Guy's got kind of a whiny voice, but... You know, he can seek value in it. I think at the time he was just so upset that his son wasn't listening to what he listened to. Well, especially when, uh, and I guess from, because I can see this both from the kid's perspective and from the dad's. So I can see it from the standpoint of like looking at it through your dad's eyes where you're like, look, you're going to find your own stuff, but I'm going to give you some things that are way better than the stuff you're going to go find on your own. And that that's the philosophy or the viewpoint that you would have with a child. Sure. And so I'm sure that, that for your dad, there was some sense of, you know, boy, it would be a lot easier to take the fact that he liked Jane's addiction or helmet or Fugazi or whoever it is. If he just got Sam and Dave or was really into the Beatles or Aretha Franklin or whatever the thing was that he was trying to give to you. You know, it's funny you mentioned the Beatles cause they were one that was, cause I got into the Beatles and my dad doesn't like the Beatles. He's it's a Stones really, guy. It's really rare for people who are big time music nerds to just completely dismiss the Beatles. Oh, he doesn't dismiss them. Well, he no, respects okay. them. But yeah, my apologies for using the wrong word. But to like to just go, eh. You know, usually when I have that conversation with people, it's it's more of a kind of thing where it's like, I just don't need to hear it a lot anymore. Like I love knowing that it's like, and, and I I believe this from my own being. Uh, there's a lot of really great stuff. Um, that's still out there um, that I haven't heard. And I love the Beatles, and I think they're great, and I love knowing that it exists, but it's been a long time since I put a Beatles record on. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know. whereas you might have a situation like, you know, uh, like you said, your dad's really a Stones guy, is that what you said? Yeah, he's more of a Stones guy by far. You know, um, and I never really understood the whole... I mean, I know that a lot of it was just built up in the media, Um but I never really understood that whole like one or the other thing. Like, like it, oh, I wasn't, don't think it wasn't it, a yeah. zero sum game, you know. That's definitely a media creation. Yeah, I know with with my dad what it was because because I remember us like sitting down and you know drinking some coffee when I was in my twenties and me talking to him about it and his analogy was to him at his age being you know he's sixty nine now he's born in forty five so he was eighteen when the Beatles came out right and to him it was the same as in sync. Or no, gotcha. You know, they, that makes total sense. Like it was a manufactured pop thing. They were they were a teeny bopper band for little screaming girls, and right. at eighteen, he was way cooler than that. And he didn't really have a reason to give them a second chance, if you will. He didn't care. He was already listening to you know. He's like when I knew that, and at that time, you know, my dad's also very into blues and Jimmy Reed and and Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters, and he's like. 
why would I listen to the Beatles, you know, do that when I could listen to Jimmy Reed or Muddy Waters or all the chess catalog or, and then when you say, well, yeah, but I mean, they, musically they grew so much more. His answer would be sure, but I wasn't going to listen to it. Right. That makes and sense I'm, to me. I'm like, fair enough. You know, yeah. I'm, I can't knock that. Whereas, you know, the stones, by the time he was aware of them, they were a little tougher. They were a little meaner, you know, satisfaction sure. meant a little bit more to him. Right. And what's and what's really interesting is there is both the Beatles and the Stones are essentially creating this new thing off of that stuff that your dad's already talking about. Oh, absolutely. Off of Chuck Berry and Little Richard and, and Jimmy Reed and you know, that whole like basically that, that initial wave of true fifties rock and roll. Yeah. Um which I think is I don't know, I feel <laughs> I don't wanna get off of my old man tangent again, but it's <laughs> It's a little bit like I wish that I wish that there were like I see these kids who like buy their Beatles and Led Zeppelin T-shirts at Target, you know, or they wear the you know, the like you see the kids walking around, they're 14 years old and they've got the Ramones T-shirt on with four names on it. Sure. And I just want to go. Okay, name a song. Just one. Just name one song. And if you don't know, I'm going to send you to the library. Right. Not going to take your T-shirt. I just need you to earn it. I don't need you to know everything. I need you to know a little. And sometimes I feel like we we have this uh, this sort of like we're we're only interested in the cultural artifact, not the actual thing. So we're sure. interested in the idea of the Ramones or the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or whatever it is as a as a product, as opposed to like an actual you know section of artistic work. It's like if somebody walked into a museum with a you know, a Rembrandt handbag and had no idea what a Rembrandt looked like. Mm-hmm. Like they would be, they would be called out as a poser. I don't think there's any difference between that and a 14 year old kid wearing a Ramones t-shirt to school when he only has a vague idea of who the Ramones are. So I didn't mean to get off on a little tangent there. No, but I think I, you know, and especially as we're so close to the holidays, I think it with that, which you stumble upon a little bit is this, this beautiful thing. And I don't know how long it's been going on. You have children and I do not. So, this might have been going on for longer than I realized, but I'm 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 very aware now of pop culture selling our youths back to us. Oh, absolutely! That, that Ramones shirt is entirely meant for you to buy your kid. Absolutely, in um, the same way that it's meant for me to buy. At the same time, it's meant for me to buy a Millennium Falcon T-shirt for my kid. Right. That's not for me. That's for the 14-year-old version of me. And right. so, what am I going to do? I'm going to. I mean, why? Are, you know, I mean, we're all sitting around right now super stoked that a year from now the new Star Wars movie is going to be out. Right. And they and know. And still people in it. And they know. They know goddamn good and well that I'm not going to go by myself. They're not selling me a ticket. They're selling me four tickets. That's because, right. Because they know that I'm going to take my entire family. And they know I'm going to do that even though the m- most three recent films were god-awful and essentially a raping of my childhood. <laughs> they don't care because they just want to capitalize on it. And maybe it'll be great. I don't know. I have no love for Jar Jar Binks. Come on, man. I have zero love for Jar Jar Binks. You should talk. <laughs> if you want to have, I'll tell you what, when we get together at the Logger House for that show, you bring up Jar Jar Binks to uh, Joel, our drummer, because <laughs> he's been giving me a hard time about how those films are better than I give him credit for. Really? So, Oh, yeah. Get into a conversation with Joel about it. It's. Uh, I will. I will. Yeah, I'm, dude, I've been scratching that itch for years. I've been trying real hard to change his mind on that and let him understand what a piece of shit. It's because his kids like him. 
It's the same thing we were just talking about. Sure. He's got he's got a son and a daughter, and there I think Joey's like thirteen, and Cece's nine or ten, and and they dig it. They like him, so therefore he he enjoys watching that and sharing them with them, and so it's a way to kind of extend his own childhood. But yeah, you're absolutely right. They're selling our youths back to us. And that, just- I've only become aware of it the last couple of years. Exactly. And, you know, the Star Wars example is exactly the one. I went to Toys R Us with my buddy and one of my best friends last year to, to go shopping for his kids. And I was like, oh, my God, look at this. You know, there's there's Lennon Falcon and an Ad-Ad Walker. And, oh, my God, they're $150? Yeah. These were like 20 bucks. I mean, I know inflation and everything, so I'm sitting there with my phone going, even by inflationary standards, this should be 45 Right. Or and you can buy the $300, the $300 uh, Lego Death Star set. Right. You know? I mean, they've basically what they've done is they've gone, okay, all these kids are 40-year-old yuppies now, so let's go ahead and sell them some toys. That's right. And it's just, oh, it's just, oh, it's so disgusting. <laughs> and yeah, I'll buy, I lie, I'll buy some of them. <laughs> I know, and that's the thing. That's what I'll be giving, you know, my friends' kids and Absol- whatnot. Absolutely, man. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I've bought hundreds of dollars of Legos and and loved every minute of it. Sure. And um, and some of it was, was, was definitely designed. Like, you know, we were really excited when the, the last time I was at the Lego store with, with uh, the family. They had, and my younger daughter was just so excited because they had this um, this thing that the people at the store had built. And it was basically the Simpsons neighborhood made out of Legos. So it was it was Homer's house, and then the car, and then the driveway, and then there was the Flanders, and then there was a Quickie Mart, and one other thing. And we were just like, where do we get that? Like, sign us up, man. We'll just, just get the credit card out. Let's go. That is pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome, but it's, again, it's just basically repackaging my youth. Yeah, right. Um, so So your dad tried when you were a teenager basically to turn you on to all this music and you were a normal teenager and you were like, I just want to listen to what I want to listen to. I'm really into Echo and the Bunny Men and The Cure and Susie and the Banshees and Depeche Mode right now and R.E.M. and I need you to leave me alone. Is that basically how you handled it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, there were actually yelling matches. It was, See, there this was... is what happens because here's the other thing and I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. You're... I'm very, very much like my old man. Okay. Now, he and I, he doesn't really, he's one of the few people I know who music is not a major priority in his life. And he's got a lot of other stuff going on, and he's a great dude, but this is not a thing that, he, he and I don't talk about music very often, um, unlike you and your dad. But whenever you have a father-son relationship or a mother-daughter relationship, and there's a great deal of similarity in personality and in uh, obsession about a particular deal or thing, that usually leads to um, familial discomfort. Would you say that that's a fairly accurate representation of your situation? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so you Absolutely. And, so you and your dad are too much alike and at opposite ends for a period of time while you're a teenager, and then you go away to school. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, okay. Went away to the University of Missouri. Okay. 700 so tell miles me, away. So tell me what happened. First of all, why did you go to Missouri? Journalism. Missouri okay. has a great journalism school, and uh, – and I wanted to go to a great journalism school, so okay. um, I went to Missouri, um, and and I got there, and I got right away. For, I mean, I was in a band. I, I had joined a band within a week of being there. That's awesome. Um, and 
you know, went and got a job at the campus radio station. Actually, we had two. We had the student-run station and we had the NPR station. I worked at the NPR station as a work-study job, you know, running back and forth with records and filling envelopes. Sure. And then went to the campus, you know, record uh, radio station and, you know, assisted with a show on there and, you know, took took my, my, my test to get my, my broadcast license, mostly because you could be in the biggest room with records you'd ever seen in your life. Oh, absolutely. And you could just sit there making mixtapes all day long. And, and I'd, you know, I listened to, you know, all this music. And, and so it was always something I did was I just, I always listened to the campus radio station. And then, you know, like I, like I said in the story, one, one night I came home after working at the, at the public radio station and I threw on the radio and, and the music, what was on just blew my mind, you know? Um, and I, you know, I listened to the first song and I was like, who is this? You know, this is amazing. It sounds slightly familiar, but it can't be because I, I would know it. This is so good. I would know it if I heard it. And, uh, um, and that, 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 you know, the second song, you know, by the same artist, I, I was waiting to hear who it was. And, and that first song I, I was, I've got dreams to remember. Um, and the second song was, uh, was shout by Otis Redding and and by then I was like I have to know who this is. I'm calling the station, but nobody's answering because nobody ever answered because they were stoned all the time. <laughs> um, and um, you know by the time the third song started, uh, you know, and it was, uh, you know, I, I had to call my dad. And and you know it's two o'clock in the morning, Missouri, so it's three o'clock in the morning in Detroit. And he answers the phone, and I'm like I just I was literally who is this? And I just held the phone up to the to the to the speaker and played it and waited 30 seconds. And I was like, so who is it? And he's like, that's Otis Redding. Why don't you know that? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I don't know. Did, did you listen to Otis Redding a lot? And he's like, every goddamn day. You know? <laughs> Cause that's how my dad talks anyway. And if you catch him at three in the morning, that's really how he's going to talk. Sure. Um, and I'm like, he's, he's great. Do you have any stuff by him? It's like, are you kidding me? What's wrong with you? At this point, I think he assumed I was, you know, inebriated in some way. Sure. And uh, and that's pretty much where the conversation ended. I was like, okay, thanks, Dad. He's like, you should be studying. Go to bed. He hangs up. But, you know, sure enough, two days later, you know, I get an express mail package waiting for me at the front desk. And he got up the next morning and put his Otis Redding records on, on tape for me and mailed them out to me. And that's love, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I played them so much. I, I'm pretty sure they didn't make it past freshman year. You just wore, um, the, you just wore the tapes out? Yeah, I just played them all the time. Took them, remixed them, because I was like, well, i got to move the slow songs onto a different tape so that I've got my Make and Move CD um, tape, you know. Absolutely. you gotta, you got a lady coming by. you got to have the right music. But then you got to have your, like, you know, exciting, you know, tape for... for you when know, you go to the for, party. Right, exactly. So... Yeah, I, I took those two tapes, turned them into four different tapes. Um, and when I came home for Thanksgiving, I was just like, then I just ravenously attacked my dad's collection and was like, maybe it's time I need to re-listen to all this stuff. Maybe it's time I, you know, all the Motown stuff that I, I, I didn't dislike, but I just tuned out because you heard it so much. Well, and, you know, a lot of people are going to be listening to this and they're not necessarily going to be from Michigan and they're not going to be of a certain age. But- right. But, I mean, we are the children of people who lived through that moment in time. Right. And 
and we grew up around other people who were the children of that moment in time and you grew up even close to her closer to it than i did you know i grew up you know 75 miles away from it but it was still sort of permeated in the culture everywhere because it was this thing that came out of this place that was like the epicenter of our state you know and so it 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 really kind of informed virtually everything i mean i can be i can remember being a kid growing up and if if i had looked back on it at you know if i look back on it now I would go, okay, well, I spent a lot of my youth being surrounded by music that you would almost think that it deliberately came, like people were showing me things that were from the place I came from. Because I grew up, you know, and you would go to parties, and I mean, I I can remember being 10 to 15 years old, and every time I went someplace where there were adults, you were going to hear a Bob Seger record. Sure. Like, that was just an automatic thing, and you were probably going to hear... Something from Motown, probably it was going to be, you know, either the Temps or the Four Tops or Smokey, but it might have been, you know, Martha and the Vandellas or, you know, Marvin Gaye or something, but there was always going to be like that, that party thing. And, you know, when you and I were growing up, there was, there was the, you know, the concept of oldies radio where they would play 50s and 60s songs. And a lot of that stuff was based around Motown. Absolutely. And so, you know. It's easy to understand why you would take it for granted because it was just kind of like it was like water. Like you didn't even notice it. It was just there. Well, and that was part of what I had to figure out was you know, my my dad left Detroit. He did uh 4 years in the in the Navy during Vietnam. Um and he was exposed to a whole world of other music in Detroit. He knew Motown, he knew Chicago blues. When he left, he discovered Memphis Soul, amongst other things, amongst Bakersfield Country and things like that. And these are all the things he would listen to when he when he came back when I was growing up, et cetera, et cetera. And it, that was something you didn't hear on the radio in Detroit. You the only Otis Redding you ever heard was Dock of the Bay, right? Because why would you play Otis Redding on you know oldies one hundred four point three WOMC when you've got the Supremes and the Temps and the Four Tops and the Contours and everything else, right? Why would you play anything by Booker T and the MGs other than Green Onions when you've, you know, you've already got all this other music? You've got, you haven't even got to the Marvin Gaye or the, you know, the, sure. um, you know, and, and so for him, that I think that was probably part of what he liked about it was it wasn't what he heard all the time from home, right? Um, and he just liked it. It was grittier. Now, did and, your dad grow up in Detroit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, in Detroit proper, and and so you know, for him. You know, it's funny. There's, there's. We were just joking about that. You know, Beatles and Stones thing right. that that people love to to turn into. Well, which side are you on? And 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 there's a similar, if quieter, you know, Motown or Stax Volt thing. Sure. That that my you know my dad was was happy. I mean, he respected Motown. He loved Motown. We heard plenty of Motown, but he loved Memphis Soul because it reminded him more of the chess stuff than the Motown stuff did. Right. Um, well, and there's it, also what there's also like you were talking about. I think the word you used was gritty or tough. I don't remember. Um, there's a there's sort of a smooth kind of polish to the Motown stuff. Sure, like it's it's live and it's energetic, but it's very like it's silky. Those those are pro, those are very polished performances where there's something more visceral and sexual about like and urgent about the stack stuff. Absolutely. Um, and I think those both can fill a great particular musical void. Um, 
but I think there's I think if you're specifically if you're you know a young man I can understand why stacks would be you know like it's kind of this you know really it's it's more rambunctious I guess yeah um so so when you came home for Thanksgiving and you dug through and you found all the Otis records what else did you discover well that's you know that's when I found my my dad's Booker T and the MG's collection ran straight through. I mean, he he was probably the only guy who bought their 1994 release um, <laughs> that has a version of I think it, I think it's got where the streets have no name on it. Wow. Um, yeah, but I mean, he, you know, the rest of the stack stuff, the Sam and Dave, um, Carla Thomas, uh, certainly Wilson Pickett, who wasn't stacks. He recorded at stacks sometimes. Um, obviously did some others at Muscle Shoals um, and, and, and found that, found obviously the, the blues collection. And, and by that point, I had kind of, you know, I'd started to get into country in a different way. And a lot of that was, you know, to kind of dovetail with, with, you know, like the first, you know, primer you had up and being in Missouri in 1995, I, I always say I was, I was, I think, you know, for a guy who was, couldn't be around for the sixties, I was really lucky that, you know, I was in the area where alt country was really being, you know, if not birthed, you know, certainly um, nestled along with, you know, Sunvolt and Wilco both put out their first records my first year of college there. The Jayhawks um, had already, you know, put out uh, two records, I believe, uh, Tomorrow the Greengrass came out in 95, but, yeah. um, or 96, but there was this great alt country scene in coming out of Missouri and the area around it. Where I'm like, okay, you know, the Uncle Tupelo stuff is great. It sounds like, you know, this mix of this kind of gritty punk rock I liked when I was a kid, but mixed with the stuff my dad listened to. I got to go back and listen to the stuff my dad listened to, and 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 taking it and going, wow, this is really great. And the other thing, you know, that I that I mix in there a little bit is always, just because I always feel I'm wrong if I don't throw it out there. I was really into Canadian music. Okay. Um, so give me an early, example of what you're what you'd be talking about. Well, the early '90s had like that, like uh, Blue Rodeo and Spirit of the West, yeah. and um, you know the Bare Naked Ladies' first couple albums. Um, you know, Tragically Hip. Um, you know, and so so I I was already I had kind of accepted that was to me that was the shocker when I moved down to Missouri and I was like nobody here knows who the Bare Naked Ladies are. In '95, they didn't. Nobody here knows who the Tragically Hip are. Nobody here knows who my favorite band, you know, outside of REM, probably my favorite band in the world was Cowboy Junkies. Um, Those first two or three Cowboy Junkies records are really, really great. Well, it was, I had the Trinity sessions on, on, on LP and I, I I must've gone to sleep to that album, you know, every night for a year when I was in high school. I'm so old. I saw that tour. Did you really? Yeah. I saw them at the MSU union ballroom in, uh, it was either the spring or the summer of 1989. Wow. Yeah, Butch Hancock opened. That one, no kidding. Yeah, it was a good show. Well, that's it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was good. My wife likes to joke. The reason I went to I went to sleep to that album every night for a year was because it puts you to sleep every night for a year. So, yeah. um, <laughs> she's not as big a fan of the Cowboy Junkies as I am. But um, so, like, I, you know, it's it's like this explosion, and I, I think it's pretty natural for someone their first year away from home. Um, but it really made me take all this stuff together and then go back to my dad's collection and go, okay, you know, 
what what was this record cut? Okay, Dad just earned his credibility back. That well, he that, should have never lost in the first place. Exactly. See, that's the thing, and that's what I keep telling myself as a parent of teenagers: <laughs> is that someday I will be looked at with some degree of uh, respect again. <laughs> right. That it won't just be okay. You're our dad. We love you, and we like you, and that's great. But like someday it'll be, wow. Maybe you did know some stuff. Maybe there was some shit that you tried to teach us and it just took too long. And you just gotta hope that it winds up coming back around. And I would think from your dad's perspective. Like to see you make that sort of big circle had to be really gratifying. Oh, I, I he'll admit as much, you know, that it was it was thrilling to him. You know, I'm I'm downstairs, like you know, flipping through records, and I'm oh, he's got you know, um, not music from Big Pink, but the band, you know, by the sure. band, and and he had that one, and I throw it on, and and to me, it was like, oh my god, there was Uncle Tupelo before there was Uncle Tupelo, yeah. But, but better in some ways, you know, in a lot of ways, in a lot of like, ways, you know, this is, this is amazing. And, and, you know, once he got past the standing in the doorway, scratching his head going, because, you know, how didn't he get this the first time or I, yeah. a year ago, you know, he would have thrown this record on the floor and stomped out of the house. And a lot of that has to do with, you just got to find stuff when it's your time to find stuff. And that's what, that's really what it was. And, and, you know, I, like I said, it, it comes full circle because by the time I'm in my late 20s and certainly all the way through my 30s, my dad's finding things that I listened to 20 years ago, but he's just hearing it. Right. And he's going, you know what? I'd like to hear more of this. You know, hey, tell, what can you tell me about this Derek Trucks guy? You know, and oh, I'm like, sure. oh, you know, or Gary Clark Jr. Saw him on TV the other day. Guy really seems like he's something, you know. What do you got by him? Robert Randolph, stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, sure, Dad, you know. I'm, yeah, I've, I've got to suffer a few years now. Check it out. Now, are you um, primarily at the house? Are you a vinyl listener at home? No, I'm, 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 I've got plenty of vinyl. Um, as a matter of fact, I've, in my basement here, I've got, a, uh, I've got a late 70s jukebox that right now is all Christmas 45s. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of a mega dork that way, but... Um, we all got to be a dork about something, Dan. Yeah, I, I my vinyl collection. Um, I'm still I'm still rebuilding it after loaning way too many records to way too many friends in way too many other states. Yeah, that's some. Um, that's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah, it happens. It does. So yeah, mostly mostly digital. Um, okay. But you know, we still set aside Saturday afternoons for nothing but vinyl and you and, and your wife again, too. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And um, you do you still buy CDs? No. Okay. No, when I do was, not. We were having. I was having this conversation with a friend the other day. When was the last time you bought a CD? Um, outside of like a local band, I was trying to support. I was gonna say, and don't don't include local bands at shows. So when was the last time you went and bought like a quote unquote commercially produced compact disc? Just guess. Uh, you know, uh, probably last year. Okay. And it was probably when I, if I remember correctly, there were a couple times last year when I'd be walking out of Best Buy and they'd have like their three ninety nine, you know. Oh sure. Best of so and so, and I'd go. I don't mind hearing that in the car. Right. Grab it, throw it in the CD player in the car, listen to it once, and then go back to playing. You know, I have a hard drive in my car. I just listen off of that most time anyway. Oh, so you're not even using like an iPod or anything? No, I, I have uh, I have a five hundred gig hard drive that I plug straight to my stereo. Wow. So you're so. 
so by and large are you listening then to to full wave files as opposed to mp3s when possible it's okay. probably about half and half okay. a lot of the early stuff i pulled off of discs i only did in like 320 mp3 sure. um because there was finite disk space at the time well yeah and even so, even 320 is i mean that's a lot better than listening to it like you know 128 or something yeah right um so as you go back now and kind of look at your um, your listening habits and you think about where you are in your life, you made a comment earlier in in the discussion where you were talking about, you know, what your dad was listening to when he was the age you are now. Um, how do you feel like that, that, I mean, I know you don't have kids to pass this on to right now, but how do you feel like that messes up with, like the way you sort of now that you're an adult who's in their late 30s and the way you sort of perceive your dad and the way that he used music to shape kind of his life and 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 yours in the process you know i i i think i think the way that i see that i listen to music every bit as much as he did um and that you know like i said he still currently does it's a lot easier for me today than it was for him you know, 25 years ago. Sure. He didn't have a Spotify that he could just throw on and, you know, run through for the day. If you want to make a playlist, it meant sitting down with records and picking out songs and putting together a mixtape. Um, uh, so I, I wonder how much different it would have been for him. Uh, but then again, the flip side of that is I wonder how much that stuff I wouldn't have heard. You know, my dad has always been great about, he would always listen to an album all the way through. He wasn't a throw on the hit single and then flip it off kind of a thing. And that's probably the one thing I see missing today. Because um, there's no reason to listen to an album all the way through uh, when it's digital. You know, you can just listen to the track you want to. Um, and so I look at that and I'm like, I still try to hold that part of music, you know, that he did, which is, you know, if I respect an artist enough to pick up, you know, download an album, buy an album, buy it on vinyl. I listen to everything all the way through. I don't just throw on a couple of tracks. I just do it all the way through. Um, what what I think I do a little bit better than he did, and uh, uh, you know, and he he I think I think if I were to call him right now, he'd agree. I think I have more of an open mind to new music than he does. Okay, but you know what? I listen to about as much electronic dance music as he did hip hop. Yeah. None. See this, and this gets into another thing too. Where, like, I was having a conversation with some friends of of mine, maybe a month or six weeks ago, and um, and it's it, you know they're a married couple, and the conversation came up where she was kind of accusing him of not really buying quote unquote new music. So even when he bought records that were new, they were usually records that had been out a while, or they were reissues of old records. And I and I sort of we we got into this conversation, and I don't know that we really came to any kind of a concrete conclusion but i realized that the vast majority of what i'm listening to and when i say vast majority i mean like probably like 85 or 90 percent it's not music that was created in the last 10 or 12 months i'm not listening to i mean i'm listening to some but the bulk of my listening is not records that are are new and i'm sure some of that is my age but some of that is also that, you know, I'm buying music on a particular format where I can go out and I can get used copies of something very, very inexpensively. So sure. I can, you know, I just went to the bargain bin at a store in Kalamazoo a week or two ago and went nuts and bought like 22 records. And it cost me like $13 because it was all 50 cent records, you know, a couple of them were a dollar. You know, I can't go. By buy. the way, 
I can't go buy the, you know, I mean, not that I'm like super excited, but I can't go buy the new MGMT record for 50 cents. No. You know? I do want to let you know that there is a record store in the basement of the logger house that's open on gig nights. You're shitting me. I'm dead serious. What do they have? Eh, it's mostly oddball, odds and ends. I mean, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to go down there and find something incredibly rare, but, you sure. know, you'll find something for 50 cents like a. I picked up Linda Ronstadt's greatest hits and has my wife's never been happier, you know, um, and a couple of records that, you know, by artists that may have been on your top 10 overrated list. Hey, yes. there's, there's no problem with that. You know, <laughs> lots of people love those records, man. You know, there's even, there, here's the thing. There's even some records by those bands that I like. I just don't think they should be liked as much as they are. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, I mean, I got into a conversation with somebody about the whole Led Zeppelin thing because that was the one where I really took the shit. Oh, yeah. You know, that's the one where, like, and I knew that was going to ruffle some feathers, you know. And I'm like, look, I'm not telling you that Led Zeppelin are a bad band. I just don't think they're the, you know, third or fourth greatest band in the history of the world. I just don't. And here's why. And you can think I'm an asshole. And that's fine. Sometimes I am. But here's the thing. I have a blog. (laughs) And this is what, this is the shit that comes out of my brain. So here we go. wrong with that. And so... The other thing that's been really fun since the couple month in the couple months that I've been doing this is that this is a great vehicle to have convert. Like you and I have been talking for an hour. Wow. And this is just all we're doing is talking about music. We're yeah. talking about and, and we're talking about how that fits in the context of where we grew up and what your dad was like and what that meant to you and what it, you know how that helps you get through going away to school and and I think that sometimes it's this thing that because it's everywhere, we just and especially now because, it, like you mentioned, it's so easy to get it. Like it's it's no different than breathing air. We just think it's something we're entitled to, and we forget that it comes from a place, and that it has to be financially supported. And so that was another big thing when I put this blog together and started doing the podcast was like, how do I how do I talk to people to find out who's actually buying music? Mm. You know who's who's consuming music in a way. You know, and I'm not saying, you know, like you said, you listen to Spotify. That You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's there. I've listened to it. I've used it, you know. But I think, like, I look at it from the perspective of my, my teenage daughters who have basically grown up in an era where if they hadn't had a parent like me, would they just think that music was something that you got for free? That's a good question, you know, and I, I thought about that. I thought about that when I when I first got on a Spotify a few years back and, I'm making those first few playlists, and I was thinking, like I had said earlier, I was thinking of those days when I would go to the campus radio station and spend six hours and a handful of Radio Shack 90-minute tapes, digging through the you know the stacks and stacks of records to find you know the the, the you know the song by some band that I wanted to put on this tape, and to think now all I do is I just sit there and I I click search and find it in 15 seconds, and right. you know on one hand. Man, that's a lot easier. I don't go to college anymore. I don't think I could go to you know. But the flip side is. It saves a lot of time. Yeah. But I also appreciated all that music for what it was. Um, Well, and like you're talking about digging through the the, the racks at the radio station or digging through your dad's stuff. Or, you know, the, the, the mention I made a few minutes ago about the bargain bin. Because you're physically flipping through those things and they're in front of your brain for a second or two, you're being exposed to things you did not know were in the world before you saw them. And so there may be something that comes up and basically looks cool and you go, 
I'm going to turn this over and I'm going to look at it and then I'm going to play, you know, song two because it's got a neat title and it's two minutes and 47 seconds long. And you might look at it and go, okay, well, I, I know this this is on Sire in 1987 and it was produced by these guys who produced this other thing. And I don't really know any of the players, but the artwork looks cool. And so you make essentially an educated guess based on what, what info you can grab in just a very short period of time. And, sure. And Pandora and Spotify, they may give you something that's awesome that you didn't know about before. And that's great, but I don't know that it's the same. And maybe it's just because this is how I got used to doing it. That, to me, just doesn't seem the same. I, I'll tell you. I can tell you directly. It's not. I had this conversation with the aforementioned friend with the three kids. He's got three kids that are three boys. They're all just becoming teenagers. They're like 12, 13, and 14. So God bless him. Yeah, no um, but, um But we were talking about their music listening habits, and that was something he was he was talking about on Friday night was that he has a certain amount of frustration because they all have he, – he's like, they all got good taste in music. They don't all listen to just what their old man does. You know, the middle one's really into like Black Flag and my buddy was never a punk rock guy. But, you know, you know the oldest one is, is really into like metal, like Iron Maiden, old school metal. Okay. And the youngest one's really into like Pink Floyd and, and some of that stuff. But the thing that he's like, they never go through my CDs and I've got hundreds of them. Between me and their mom, we've got maybe thousands of CDs and records, and they never touch them. And when I mention it, they go, "Oh, we find what we're looking for on you know online." And he's like, "But, but then I'll play something for them, and they'll have no idea." And it's something that I'm like, "Man, if you just took a minute, the artwork alone would. If you're an Iron Maiden, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of metal records that have covers alone that you might be into, you know." Right. I mean, I'm, like, I was never a metal guy, but I, you know. Yeah, me neither. It's it's really hard to not look at those, like, 80s metal records and not go, okay, that if you're a 14-year-old boy, that artwork is just badass. Yeah. Like, you're just going to, like, okay, the cover of British Steel. Like, yeah. that's just a sweet record cover. Sorry. That's just an awesome, awesome record cover. And you can't get that from a 300 by 300 pixel piece of digital art. No, you, you cannot. Can't, you can't hold that in your hand and feel it and... You know, I was talking to to Dave, who wrote the XTC piece that that just went up, and you know he teaches high school, and a bunch of the kids that he teaches don't even use Spotify or Pandora; they're just listening to songs on YouTube. That's how they're yeah. listening to music; they're listening to YouTube. Sure. And one of the things that I think is really a shame about that is that there is no longer this sort of congress that happens between people when music listening happens. Like you were talking about making a making a you know slow jam modus reading tape so you can make out with your lady and then there's a the excited one so you can take it to a party well you know i don't i think a lot of people don't even listen to music with other people anymore because they're putting earbuds in or they're listening to it in the car by themselves and that's that's the extent of their their music listening i was about to say the yeah the head the headphones the omnipresence of headphones now you know is is the other piece you know so they're not they're not sharing stuff with each other no i mean they might text each other and go hey you know Check out the new Pharrell track, or this new Drake single just dropped. But they're not really sharing it with each other. They're just saying, "Hey, this thing is, it exists." You know, they're not going, "Hey, listen to this." You know, I, I mean, maybe they are, and they're doing that in the car. I don't know, but I just, you know, when I, when I see that sort of thing, and like, it, it, there's a little piece of me that dies. <laughs> we sound like cranky old men right now. We, Dan, we are cranky old men. I don't we sound know. like a. I don't know if you know. know. We'll see. And here's the thing. I'm not going to sit here and go, you know what was great? 
life in the 1980s. Like, I'm not going to be that guy. Right. You know, but I just, so it's not like it's like about that time period or like when I grew up was better. They're the good old days. A lot of things have gotten a lot easier and better and more awesome. One of the conversations I just had with a friend recently and with my wife was we were talking about that. Like, I was a weird kid in high school. Um, I was not a jock. I was really into, quote, because I grew up in a small town, you know, with 75 other people in my graduating class and so because i liked the smiths and rem and echo and the bunny men i was the weird kid like there were a handful of people you know i was on quiz bowl instead of the football team i was in theater instead of playing basketball um and i liked books and monty python and you know weird tv shows and i look at it now my daughters are 14 and 16 and they watch sherlock and doctor who and you know read weird books and like crazy music that isn't necessarily in the mainstream. And because of the internet, they realize almost immediately we're not alone. If I can go find this crazy, you know, if I can go watch some weird sci-fi show on Netflix or on demand, then I must know that I'm not the only one out there. Whereas, you know, when I was 16 years old, you had to go hunting all over town to find a used copy of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And then you hung on to that thing like it was the Holy Grail. Right. You know, and so I think in that respect, I think life has gotten a lot better. You know, I think it's I think it's a lot easier to be a kid who has fringe tastes now or to be exposed to stuff that you weren't. But because there's so much stuff and because it's all about, hey, here's this new thing. Here's this new thing. Sometimes I feel like like what you're saying, they don't they don't slow down and see what's right in front of them. Like, here's a whole record. Don't just listen to the same song. Seventy (laughs) one times. Take six of those plays and listen to one side of that record. And right. see if it's for you because it was it was all done at the same time and it was done as part of the same piece of art and i feel like that's a little bit of a loss i guess i have to believe it there has to be something cyclical about it i just don't know how it comes back around so do you think that's what the cuz and i'm <laughs> and i'm a guy who has a who has a blog and a podcast about vinyl records and i'm already sick of hearing people tell me it's coming back vinyl's back you know, my in-laws are very, very sweet people. They were over the other night, and they know it's back, you know? Right, right. Okay, what does that mean? Like, like, does that mean that it's going to become a ubiquitous format again? I don't think so. I don't no, think... it, means, it means our generation has the money to buy the stuff that we had when we were kids, like we were talking about. But I see a lot of younger people when I go to the store. Like, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how often you're go- you going to the record shop. I mean, what part, often, yeah. What part of Detroit do you live in, Dan? Uh, east side. I'm over in, on the east side here. Okay, so a couple of stores that are near you would be what? Uh, we got Melodies and Memories nearby. Okay. Um, and usually I go to Flipside over in Clawson. Okay. Yeah. Um, those are both pretty decent stores. Melodies and Memories has a bigger selection. They they always have a real good selection. Um, Flipside's great if you're just looking for one of those what I stumble into one day. Okay. So when you go to one of those shops, are you noticing a lot of uh, quote unquote kids, people in their teen teenage years, college age? I will over Flipside. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I will. Okay. But less so at Melodies and Memories. Yeah, but that's kind of the way that store is structured. I mean, they've got a whole room of like, you know, fifties and sixties um, artifact stuff. You know, if you want, if you were looking for a, um, you know, lost in space uh, lunch pail, that's where you'd go too. So okay, so um, it's, so, it, so, it, so that's basically a shop that kind of deals in ephemera. Yeah. Okay. Um, whereas, uh, you know, Flipside has some of that too, but it's it's more limited, and they're they're more a straight record store. 
and they've kind of eliminated their CD stock and just gone to records. I see more young people in there, but uh, to be honest, they're the kind of young people that probably would have been more like you in high school, you know? Right. I, I still don't, I'm not, I don't see a bunch of guys in varsity coats, you know, picking well, up the newest Drake's, you know, record. Exactly. And I, and, and that's kind of like, I guess that's the question that I'm asking. What is the, um, what's the rational expectation from quote unquote back? Like I, if you're a teenage kid and you've grown up and you haven't been shown like why vinyl would be awesome. And some of those kids are going to get that. And some of those kids don't care and they don't have to care. If you really just want to listen to the new Taylor Swift single, why wouldn't you just listen to it on your phone? You know, like I, I understand that completely. Right. And so, yeah. I, and so I wonder like, yeah, you're saying this is a cyclical thing. And I think that's totally true. And I think people, a certain segment of people and a certain kind of person are kind of craving this, physical thing and a lot of people are getting either back into it or into it for the first time but like i kind of wonder what's the end game here you know there's a lot of there's a lot of talk now about how production can't keep up with demand like united pressing down in nashville just added 16 presses to their plant and they and they're doing that just so they can keep up so they don't have to have like these you know eight and ten week turnarounds sure that's great but the the question becomes is that once that's fulfilled like are we are we going to reach the the point where like this is just going to become a novelty thing again and it's just going to fade back that's what i worry about to be honest um because the the bottom line is when it comes to music listening more than habits i think that convenience has always been king and records stopped being convenient because CDs were smaller and easier to transport and could be played in your car. And and then digital music became easier than CDs and you didn't have to carry these antiquated CDs. And, and the true audiophiles will, will want to go back to vinyl. Sure. Um, but I don't, you know, there's almost no way to make what's more convenient than a digital file that you can put on a chip, you know, the size of, you know, the size of a watch battery. I mean, I, I have an iPod. I have like 26,000 songs on it. I put podcasts on it constantly. I drive something like 30 or 35,000 miles a year for work. I'm in the car a lot. Sure. I'm listening to music a lot more digitally than I am in analog. Mm -hmm. That's not by choice because that basically says, okay, am I going to listen to music when I'm in the car or am I not? Because you know, as much as I would love to have a 1957 Oldsmobile that has a glove box that opens up and has a turntable in it, mm-hmm. and have that sound good and not skip and ruin all my records, that that's not really an option for me. Sure. So listening to an iPod is really the best alternative. Um. But I also, like you, was kind of raised in an environment where like this was how you got music, and so there is um. In addition to there being an artifact, there is almost a sense of respect and kind of uh, a tradition of saying, okay, well, this is this is what real music looks like. You'll hear people say, you know, well, I don't really feel like I own a record unless I have it on vinyl. And that's kind of how I feel. But I also realize that um, there aren't a lot of people who are teenagers and younger who are growing up in an environment. Like those numbers right. are just declining more and more all the time. And so what happens when like that ceases to be what they're 
exposed to. Like when that cycle sort of runs itself out and that becomes a very, very small portion of the population. Is it just going to be like, I don't want it to just be a file that or a, a format that is the domain of audio nerds. And that's it. You know, like I don't, I don't want it to be the go-to format. Like I, you know, it's kind of like when that, when that band that you love sells out. Right. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, you, you know, you're from Detroit. And so, you know, one of the, one of the bands that, that people always love to talk about is the white stripes. Uh-huh. You know, and people always love to talk about, okay, well, when the White Stripes took that, that, that big deal with XL or whoever it was and basically became the next big thing, um, there was that, that sensation of, okay, well, they're not ours anymore. Like they, they don't just belong to us. They're not, they're not part of this little movement any longer. They've, they've become this huge fucking thing. And therefore you feel almost a sense of. Um, regret's not the right word, and anger's not really the right word either. But you like you feel some resentment, I guess. There's a resentment that comes out of uh, almost a mourning kind of grief, you know. Exactly. So you have this resentment. So I, I guess the analogy that I'm sort of stumbling over is it's like it's like when the White Stripes sold out and you had that resentment. You know, if vinyl became like the go-to thing again, there would be all of these hipsters sitting around like me, even though I'm not a hipster. Sitting around going, oh, I liked vinyl before it was cool. You know? So, yeah, like, it's kind I've of had a double, those moments. I, it's you a know, double-edged I've, sword, you know? I've I've walked into, um, oh, what's that store? That's, they have one out at Somerset Mall. Um, oh, Urban Outfitters? Urban Outfitters, thank you. You read my mind. I've yeah. walked in there and looked and gone, oh, man, they got the first Bauhaus record here. I mean, it's 25 bucks, but it's the first Bauhaus record and. You know, oh, it's been remastered. I have to buy it. I may not get that at my local record shop. Sure enough, they haven't had it. And I buy it, and I go home, and I'm like, I just bought a record from Urban Outfitters. And you feel icky. I'm going to hell. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I ever bought at Urban Outfitters was, like, like I said, I have teenage daughters, so of course, it makes sense that that's the only reason I would go in there, because a dude like me does not need to go into Urban Outfitters. Right. And they had... I know I bought two records, but the one record that I really remember buying was they had one of the Light in the Attic reissues of the Serge Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin record. Oh, no and, kidding. Yeah, and it was it was 50% off, and it had been marked down from 25 to 20 so I got it for nine ninety nine. Oh, nice. And I thought, you know, I'm willing to take the ickiness of buying a record at Urban Outfitters if I can get this sweet repressing completely sealed for 10 bucks. So that was the exception I made, but that doesn't mean that my transaction was any less icky than yours dan so i and no, I, that's what i'm saying it's I, you know it's just it's where yet, i got my copy of remain in light too and oh. yet there's a part of that where you're like okay well maybe maybe that's maybe that's the concession you have to make to keep this thing alive right like you have to let it be sold i mean i can remember when i was a kid you probably can too you can buy records at the grocery store yeah you know like we I grew up in a small town in the Thumb, and um, there was an A&P in town. That was the only place you could really go to buy groceries. And they had this display unit when you came in the door, and there would be, you know, like the 10 best-selling records from the week would be on that. And then next to that, there was a classical section that they had, and they had these Funkin' Wagnalls, um, which, you know, back for you children who don't know what an encyclopedia is, they made these books that had stuff in them before Wikipedia. (laughs) And this was an encyclopedia company, and... um, they had sponsored these basically like sort of like rudimentary um, 
like entry level uh, records based on a specific conductor, and there were like twenty of them in the series. And every week, my mom would go to the store and she would buy the next one. So she would go week one and she would buy Beethoven. That would be number one, and then Mozart would be number two, and then Tchaikovsky would be three, and so on. You know, and so we had like I don't know sixteen or eighteen of these twenty. And I see them now all the time, and so I'm trying to, like, fill it up and get all 20. And I don't even listen to classical music very much in the house. But it was the kind of thing where it was like, okay, well, we did that while we were buying, you know, Kogel Viennas and a gallon of milk and a carton of eggs. Right. And, like, I think that, you know, it would be okay if I could go to Meyer and buy, you know, vinyl. Even if that vinyl was just what was, quote-unquote, really popular. You know, the same shit that you see on CD when you go out to get your groceries or you go you know, buy your long underwear or whatever when you go to Meyer. Um, you know, wouldn't it be sweet if they had, you know, a rack of, you know, 30 different titles? Like, yeah, it might, it might be kind of corny, but it seems like it seems like that would be kind of sweet to just go out and, you know, go, okay, well, I'm going to pick up, uh, you know, this record from my mom because I think she's really, you know, the new Carrie Underwood's here, and, you know, maybe maybe my aunt would really like it for Christmas or something. Sure. You know, so I'm starting to, I'm starting to, I'm starting to run out of momentum here, Dan. I'm, I'm talking about Carrie Underwood now. It's getting really bad. That's um, yeah. That I don't know what that entails, but or what that signifies, but uh, it means that I've stopped talking about things that are good. Apparently, or I've started talking about things that are attractive. Um, oh, yes. Sorry. No, sorry. I was going to say something similar to that. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Um, this was super fun. Yeah, I had a blast, man. I, I really enjoyed myself. And um, when I credit you on the the thing, because this is going to go up early next week, and I'll do. Pretty much exactly with your deal, the same thing I did with Dave. I'll format the whole thing, and then I will, in the podcast page, basically include a, a link to our conversation, even though we really didn't talk about Otis very much. Yeah, that's I always o- feel bad about that. That's okay. Um, I'm going to do a little – I'll do a little intro and say we started talking about Otis, and that really didn't happen. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> I mean, this is really more of just a general music conversation. I was all prepped for, like, this whole Otis thing. So I, was I. I, like, I. I had my playlist in front of me. I had like I had, like, some questions thought. You know, I was like – Let's talk, you know, how do you, like, how did that dude make that many sweet records in five years? That's, isn't that the question? Like, that's I just mean, amazing to me. He was 26 when he died. I know. So, I mean, that, that blows my, my wife went to grad school at University of Wisconsin-Madison and, and when, you know, the first time I went out there with her, of course he, he died in Madison and right. a plane crashed in the lake and they have a. Uh, and that was the only thing I wanted to see in Madison was the the little like plaque they have for him there, you know. The rest of Madison be damned. I, I could care less about the football stadium or the state capitol or anything. I want to see, right. you know, I want to see the plaque, you know, to to the to the lake that took you know perhaps America's greatest soul singer. You know, do you did you think about that before we talked about this as to whether or not he really is America's greatest soul singer? I I stand. I always stand by. To me, you know, you can make a great argument for Sam Cooke. Yep. You can make a great argument for Marvin Gaye. Um, you can make a great argument for Aretha Franklin, and you can make a great argument for James Brown. But Otis Otis is it for me. I I don't. I think I'd have a really hard time fighting you on that. I don't know that I've. I don't know that I would have definitively made up my mind. Um. And and it's interesting because one of the things I was going to – I guess we'll do it now then since we're recording and I'll just piece this shit back together as long as we're on the subject. <laughs> one of the things that's really crazy to me is I don't know that I'm a, that I'm where you were with your dad when you went to school. But Otis Redding to me has always been a guy who I have appreciated and liked a great deal. But I don't know that I've ever actually owned anything, which 
it's not easy to own it. Well, That's it's interesting it. when you when you when you and I talked that you were really excited about doing a primer, and you gave me the list of names that you gave me, which were all fantastic, and we will do this again if you're willing, um, and let you do one of those other things. Um, I think maybe Steve Earle is the one I'm most excited to have you do. Um, Love Steve Earle. Steve Earle's pretty great, and I've been I've been rewatching The Wire lately. I don't know if you seen. Okay. That? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he plays he plays the sponsor of one of the guys who's a heroin addict who's in recovery, and um, he's he's just Steve Earle's just a really great dude. Yeah. Um, and it's a hell of a story, um, with his own his own addiction and how you know he wound up in prison basically in the middle of his career. Um, but anyway, I digress. Uh, but when you but when you sent me Otis, I was like, this is the one thing where I feel like there's a like there's a little bit of a gap in my knowledge base. And so I was really excited about kind of seeing your history and perspective and what you were what you were pumped up about and and making sure that that I kind of didn't like I didn't miss the nuance of it because I've got you know you get the big stuff. Um but there's a lot of there's a lot of little a lot of little tidbits along the way that that like as I've listened to the songs that you sent me and I was like, I know I've heard this before, but I don't know that I've heard it more than once or twice, and I, I, I feel embarrassed about it. Did I lose you, Dan? No, no, I'm here. Okay. Um, so, so thank you. Thanks no, it for... was it was my it was my pleasure. It's one of those things. Uh, if I have a few too many cocktails, um, which I've been known to do now and again, um, which. Not a surprise for a guy who writes a bourbon blog. I was just gonna. I was just <laughs> getting ready to mention that too. Uh, I, I will make an impassioned argument that the the band that was recording Otis at the end there may have been the greatest band rock and roll band ever assembled. Wow! So who would be in? So Steve Cropper is in that. You got Steve Cropper on guitar. Okay. You've got Duck Dunn on bass. Yep. You got Al Jackson on drums and Booker T on the key on the on the organ. Now you got Isaac Hayes on the piano. And by that point you have either the Memphis Horns or the Barquets on the horns. So you're talking about I mean this is the vintage era Stax Volt band. Yeah. That you know was so beloved that the Beatles were trying everything in their power to to, to try to record, you know, in the studio with in in 67, but they didn't think they could crowd control well enough. I mean that's, I mean, I, I have nothing but respect for the Wrecking Crew. I got nothing but respect for, you know, the, the, the Funk Brothers and all that. I just love that. That Stax Vault band is just amazing. And, and you, put, you put Otis Redding in front of it. Yeah. That's, pretty, that's a pretty punchy lineup. Yeah. I mean, you're gonna it's have just... A hard, you're going to have a hard time fucking it up with those people. Right. The other thing that I think that I wasn't aware of is that, that I didn't realize that Otis had written so much of his canon. Like, I thought a lot of it was like, kind of built on the the Sam Cooke model where like mm-hmm. there were some originals but a lot of it was like okay get this from a songwriter or you get this and you cover it from somebody else and that's not really how it works with Otis no no he had a great working relationship with Steve Cropper so he'd come up with a song idea and he'd go to Steve Cropper and say I got this here's how it goes here's my words you know here's what it is and Steve Cropper would sit down with him two of them locked themselves in a hotel room for three days and write a few songs. And they weren't, from everything I've read, they weren't like best friends. They got along great. They were great working partners. But, 
you know, it's not like they were, you know, arm in arm buddies or anything. So it was, it they was just, more of a working relationship. Than they like, really work together well. Okay. And sometimes that happens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly, you know, after 64, that's the relationship that, the, that John and Paul had by, by 65 anyway. Yeah. You know, that's, that's you know, you hear that at best, that's the relationship that Mick and Keith had by, by 68 and on. You know, I, I, I think that's, I think that is one of the things that sets Otis apart. But that, again, that's the difference in the, in the Stax Volt system as opposed to one of those other systems, you know. Like I mean, the Motown in Motown. System. Right. Smokey could write his tunes. Um, right. He was a writer, first and foremost, but. Marvin could write his tunes. Right, right. But he had to fight for that. But, like, well, yeah, and then, and then that's the other thing. Like, there's this system in Motown where if you go take the tour, which for our folks who are listening to this and you live within driving distance of the city of Detroit and you consider yourself a music fan, you owe it to yourself to go to Hitsville. And take Absolutely. that and take that tour for a couple of hours. It's it's. I did it for the first time this summer, actually, and um, it was it was wonderful, um, to be in that room. But they tell you this story, and I'm sure you've heard this before, Dan. They tell you the story where, um, they would all get together. So all the primary folks would get together on I think it was Fridays, and they would basically try to narrow down what was going to be the single for the next week, and they would get it down to two or three, and then Barry Gordy would play it and have the person who wanted to do it sing it and then he would ask the question would you buy this record if you had a dollar left would you buy this record or would you buy a hot dog and so with the Motown thing it was about the song and about the idea of creating a hit where I think with Stax it was more like this philosophy of like personal expression and pushing this this like constant moving ball forward and just kind of, you know, go, 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 and and really, again, like we talked about earlier, that whole, the whole, you know, inner momentum thing. Whereas there was a silky smoothness to Motown, and they're trying to create hits, and Motown's just trying to make kick-ass records. And whatever happens, be damned. Yeah. Which is why you hear all that lush instrumentation on the Motown records that you don't get on the Stax Vault records. You know, you don't really get the strings in there like you get with Motown you know and that's all that's all part of the beauty of motown is is that they were making these beautifully polished three and a half minute records um but you know the you know back to my dad's words the you know the gritty roughness of stacks volt is it's just the flip side of that and and sam cook was probably the guy who could walk between those two the easiest um are you familiar with sil johnson at all a little bit a little bit um if you like that kind of middle ground and you think Sam Cooke embodies that, I would really recommend checking out some Syl Johnson. I um, will. This is a guy who I, I didn't really know anything about him until a couple of years ago. And I, I picked up a record that was reissued by a label out of Chicago called uh, Numero Group. And they've done a lot of these reissues where they're based on a context of like a ge- geographic location or a particular label in a place. And um, and Sil was a guy who, and the name of the label he was on right now, Twinight, I think. Um, and he put out, God, I don't know, six or seven records between like the, you know, the time, you know, 64, 65 up through the early seventies. And the, the first like two or three records are really kind of done in that sort of Sam Cook, Wilson Pickett, James Brown kind of vein. So like punchy horns 
um, you know, peppy drum kit, um, tight bass grooves, short songs, um, and they're really they're sort of hypersexualized. Like the fir- the second record is called "Dresses Too Short." Nice, um, and uh, it's I if you're into that stuff, I would highly recommend that you check it out. Um, I, you can I know you can listen to some of that stuff through the Numero Group site, but there's also some stuff now that's available on like uh, Spotify and iTunes as well. Right on. So if you're if you're into that, I would, um, I would really really recommend it. Yeah. So, Dan, again, this was this was just a treat. I really appreciate you taking so much time and and uh, putting together the piece. It's really really good. Oh, it was my pleasure. Believe me. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. And. So once again, that was my talk with uh, my buddy Dan McKernan from Desolation Angels, who wrote that terrific piece about Otis Redding for the uh, Wax and Wayne site that went up on December 15th. Um, I apologize if I sound a little uh, throaty here. I sound a little Kathleen Turner. My uh, sincerest regrets and apologies. I want to thank you very much for sticking with us this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed us doing something a little different. Um, I really enjoyed my talk with Dan, and I know know it was kind of long. It was about 35 or 40 minutes longer than we normally go. But, um, you know, as I mentioned to you throughout the process of putting this together, I want this thing to be a community. And part of being a community is having some voices who are different than my own, different people, different perspectives, different ideas. And I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, as always, please find us on, uh, on the web at waxandwaynemusic.com. Find us on Twitter at waxandwaynemusic. Search for us on Facebook. Find us on Tumblr. If you're listening to us on on uh, iTunes or Stitcher, give us a review. We would love to hear from you. We would love to know what you think. Remember, your positive reviews help us to get in front of new listeners all the time. We really appreciate it. I'm probably not going to talk to you again until after the birth of the Jeebus. Um, we're probably going to talk again next Friday. The plan is to put another podcast up on Friday morning, the day after Christmas, uh, which means I'll have to record this during the week next week because, you know, I'll have f- familial obligations and whatnot. Um, I, you know, what are your, what are your holiday wishes? What are your, what are you hoping for? What are you excited about? Please let us know. Send us an email at, uh, to, uh, waxedandwaned at gmail.com. Uh, we've heard from lots of you over the last few weeks. Uh, remember Twitter is also a good way to get a hold of us too. I don't know if I mentioned, do we have a Twitter account? We've maybe talked about that once or twice before. Thank you again to my friend, Dan McKernan. Uh, what a cool dude. What a, what a great guy. Um, remember, If you want to pitch us a primer, a band you love, an artist you love, a guy you love, a woman you love, whoever it is, uh, if they make music and you've got 60 minutes worth of songs and you think that somebody might like it, uh, we'd love to hear about it. Um, One of the things I'm going to regale you with next week is I've been buying more records um, because I can't stop. I'm uh, going insane and I'm probably going to not have any money for retirement, but I'm going to have a shit ton of records. Um, As my buddy Todd Stonehouse once said, my original pressings of uh, the Tom Waits records are my retirement fund. Um, I don't have as many of those as he does, but I have some. So perhaps I'll have something to run with there. Um, again, thanks. Thanks again for sticking around. It's been a uh, it's been a great time with you. And um, keep listening. We'll see you on the flip side. We'll see you next week. Take care.